We had some technical difficulties this week with recording a sermon, so I've been asked to reread from my manuscript. Now it's a very different situation, different sound, and uh, very different for me. But uh, this week we are looking at Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 14 to 29, but we began our reading in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. The word of God does not fail. His faithfulness to his promises is assured. In the passage we looked at last week, verses 6 to 13, Paul established the central thesis on the plan that or on the basis that God's plan and promise do not rest on human activity. They do not rest on human beings, but on God alone. But then this argument raises even more questions, questions about God's righteousness. 
And so verses 14 through 23 constitute a detour of sorts, a detour from the main road of Paul's argument in Romans. He knows that his insistence on God's initiative in determining who should be saved and who rejected will meet with questions and even objections, undoubtedly because he had run into such objections frequently during his ministry. Indeed, these questions state the inevitable human response to an insistence on the sovereignty of God in salvation. If God himself decides whom he will choose and whom he will reject without taking into account at all anything in themselves or what they had done, how can he still be righteous? How can he still blame people if they reject him? And while these questions seem expected, even necessary, the responses are not at all what we might expect. Paul does not even attempt to show how God's choice of human beings for salvation fits with their own choosing of God in faith. Quite the contrary, rather than compromising the apparent absolute and unqualified nature of God's election, he reasserts it in even stronger terms. God not only has mercy on whomever he wants, he also hardens whomever he wants. Neither does Paul try to explain here how the two strands of his teaching cohere together. That God, by his own sovereign choice, elects human beings to salvation, while at the same time human beings, by a responsible choice of their own free will, are rightly condemned for their rejection of God. Now, during, during this excursus, let us not miss the forest for the trees. Paul is not talking about these things in a vacuum, nor is he introducing a, a novel idea in divine election or giving a complete lecture here on predestination. The Jewish people already rightly affirmed God's sovereignty in his election of Israel, that, the, that they were his only chosen nation throughout history. But Paul's argument is regarding individual salvation. God, being sovereign, is not bound to choose on the basis of ethnicity, verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he can save Gentiles as well as Jews and on the terms he chooses. And so verse 14, 15, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what shall we say? Is there injustice? You know, we're, we're forced to say no, but are we sure we really agree? The question itself embodies an accusation. If God, on the basis of nothing but his own choice, verse 12, determines who is to be saved and who rejected, verse 13, then there must be unrighteousness with God. The reply must be another question. Why would God ever be under any obligation to give us anything after we have fallen, having committed cosmic treason, resulting in the desires of our hearts being only wicked continuously? If human beings were morally neutral, blank slates on which God wrote, if we were neither good nor bad until God chose which we would be, then the way Paul is describing God would be unjust. We'd still have to wrestle with the fact that that's the way the Bible describes the righteousness of God. We'd, we'd still have that to deal with. But the reality is that no one deserves to be saved. All are under the condemnation of God. If God were to deliver genuine justice for all, then all would perish. God Almighty owes us nothing. Human beings have no claim upon grace. If we had, then we would not be talking about grace at all, but about justice. 
Grace, by definition, is something that God is never obliged to give, but something that he gives freely and voluntarily. And thus Paul's answer, verse 14 to 15, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God, through Paul, has already made it crystal clear, Romans 3.10, that none is righteous. No, not one. He continues, verse 11 and 12, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If God is going to show mercy to anyone, he will have to show it to the unrighteous, the undeserving There are no innocent people to receive the mercy of God. If so, it wouldn't be mercy. God puts all of humanity into a single class, one lump. Those who need but do not at all deserve his mercy. The context of the quote from Exodus is very important. Uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 to 20. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. Now in in this passage, God is connecting who he is, the Lord, with how he behaves choosing to be gracious and merciful to whom he chooses. God's sovereign right to dispense his mercy as he sees fit is a central feature of his revealed character. This is one of the most intimate revelations of God prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God reveals himself to Moses by three things. First, he causes the glory of his goodness to pass before him. She also shares with him the name, which we attempt to pronounce as Yahweh, the the intimate name of God granted to his people for the purpose of relationship with him. And this central feature of his revealed character, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God chooses to associate his selective mercy with the revealing of his goodness and the declaration of his name. Uh, When we think of some of the primary characteristics of God, is this one that comes to mind? And so the decision to choose Jacob and reject Esau was no isolated case, but reflects God's very nature. And so Paul establishes the righteousness of God, not according to human standards, but by appealing to a much higher standard, God's own revelation of himself. Now Paul spells out the conclusion he wants us to draw from his quotation of Exodus, Romans 9.16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul First stated it positively, that God's bestowal of mercy is predicated on nothing more than his own will to be merciful. And then so it's crystal clear, he states it negatively. It depends not on human will or exertion. And finally, once again, so you can't possibly misunderstand it, it depends only on God who has mercy. Human will, that is one's inner desire, purpose, or readiness to do something, 
combined together with exertion, which is any activity at all, sum up the totality of man's capacity. Human choice and effort are not the basis on which God's merciful promise is received. Let me be as clear as possible about this. Paul is not saying that humans have no free will, only that in the clearest possible terms, free will is not the fundamental factor in divine election. It depends only on God who has mercy, not on human will or exertion. Remember, the beginning of this argument is verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And now Paul argues that there is no injustice on God's part if he chooses to bestow his mercy and the blessings of the gospel on some Jews and not on others because none are deserving. In fact, none have even desired it. It is important as we speak the truth about human inability to save ourselves that we accurately portray that our weakness is not physical or even fundamentally intellectual, but moral. It is not as though God has commanded anything of us which we are totally incapable of, only that we would never want to do it. The weakness is in your will. Who of us by our own free will, would claim to be able to choose absolute and eternal submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Who of us, by our own choosing, could practice perfect and perpetual obedience? But this is exactly what is promised to us in salvation. And this is exactly what God does in his mercy. He makes us fit for heaven. This salvation is not of ourselves. It can't be of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Paul adds to the argument then in verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. <laughs> Rather than to resolve our discomfort, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, provokes our inner rebellion against him with something even more disconcerting. He quotes from Exodus 9.16 to show that God not only selectively shows mercy on those whom he chooses, but he also hardens those whom he chooses in order to accomplish his purposes. Harden has the connotation of making spiritually insensitive, blind, and foolish. To be hardened is to be unnaturally insensitive to God and his word. A state which, if not reversed, culminates in eternal damnation. There are 15 references in Genesis to Pharaoh's heart being hardened, three of which are Pharaoh hardening his own heart and and. And so Pharaoh was already culpable. He was already, in the language of Romans 1.18, suppressing the truth. Even Romans 1.19-20, after God's existence and divine power had been made plain to him. And then God responded by giving him over, in the language of Romans 1.24, verse 26 and 28. Rather than to show him mercy, God gives him a judicial push. When God hardens Pharaoh, he hardens one who is already a sinner, one who came into the world corrupted as a son of Adam. 
Paul isn't teaching here that God hardens someone who was good or even morally neutral. But to say that God's action in hardening Pharaoh's heart was merely a response to Pharaoh hardening his own heart does not do justice either to Paul's argument in Romans 9 or the message of Exodus. If we look earlier in the narrative, we find that God had already revealed to Moses that he always intended to harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 7 verses 2 to 5. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And then in Exodus 10, 1 to 2, the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. It is interesting that Paul actually quotes Exodus 9.16, which was one of very one of only a very few verses about Pharaoh that lack an explicit reference to Pharaoh's hardening, which would make it seem like a poor choice as a preparation for Paul's conclusion that God hardens whomever he wills. But Paul's choice of passage is indispensable to his objective of making it clear that even God's negative actions, such as the hardening of Pharaoh, serve a positive purpose. Verse 17, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And his positive purpose is the greatest imaginable, the demonstration of God's power and the wider proclamation of God's name. God was using an evil man, the the most powerful man in the world at that time, to bring about this good purpose and his redemptive activity on the behalf of Israel. This is a very common theme in the Bible. It is not that God creates evil, nor ever does evil, or nor even inclines the heart to evil, but rather that God brings good out of evil, overruling the evil machinations of men to bring about his own purposes. In maintaining harmony with Paul's teaching elsewhere, and faithfulness to the wider witness of Scripture, we have to maintain side by side the complementary truth that, number one, God hardens whomever he chooses. And, number two, human beings, because of sin, are responsible for their ultimate condemnation. Thus, God's bestowing of mercy and his hardening are not equivalent acts. God's mercy is given to those who do not deserve it. His hardening affects those who have already, by their own sin, deserved condemnation. Back to Romans, Romans 9, 19-21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Someone is bound to ask, if God is responsible for hardening hearts, how can he blame anyone when they act outside his will? Aren't they simply showing that no one can resist his will? Aren't we just puppets then? 
The way this question is formed lets us know that our understanding of verses 14 to 18 is on target because this question would not be expected if the previous verses taught that the ultimate factor in human destiny were human choice. The question emerges precisely because the destiny of human beings is attributed to the will of God. And Paul doesn't now explain away the idea that God's will is the ultimate cause. In fact, Paul treats the imaginary dialogue partner now as as an antagonistic opponent, answering first with a rebuke rather than an explanation. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This is backtalk from someone when they're speaking of God. This, of course, is not a compelling argument for Paul's position. Instead of answering to our satisfaction, he essentially says, don't don't backtalk God. Don't talk back. Don't you dare to question God. By definition, the creator can do whatever he wishes with his creation. Who are we to tell God how to run the world? The reason Paul answers with a rebuke is because the one who questions in this way has correctly understood Paul's points, but comes to an evil conclusion. The objection doesn't represent a humble attempt to puzzle out the relationship between divine sovereignty and human freedom, but it it is a rebellious spirit that refuses to countenance a world in which God is absolutely sovereign and yet human beings are still responsible. And with all of the correct information and understanding of what Paul is putting down, the question essentially accuses God of unjustly hardening someone's heart and then punishing him for doing what he couldn't possibly stop from doing once his heart was hardened. Such an idea is utterly repugnant to everything that the Bible teaches about the character of God. It would be an outrageous act of injustice for God to harden somebody and then punish them for being hardened. Pharaoh, like all humanity, was already wicked. He was already rebellious, with his heart set against the things of God. Like all people, before the merciful work of God in their hearts, Genesis 6-5, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The only thing that could stop Pharaoh's evil, our evil, would be the restraints and constraints that God has placed upon us. All God had to do to accelerate the wickedness of Pharaoh was to remove the restraints from him. God had been keeping Pharaoh's wickedness in check providentially. He did not have to create fresh evil in the heart of Pharaoh. The evil disposition was already there. And so through a providential act that was both an act of punishment on Pharaoh and an act of redemption to Israel, God removed the restraints and therefore hardened Pharaoh's heart. In theological terms, we call this judicial hardening. God's activity towards Pharaoh is an act of punitive judgment. Pharaoh gets justice. The people of Israel get mercy. So there's no injustice involved in this act of hardening. It is only good. This is what Paul was describing in Romans 1 regarding all who remain under the wrath of God. In his justice, he gives them over, Romans 1, 21 to 22. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. When Paul finally does answer the expected question, it is hardly how we might expect. Quoting both Isaiah 29:16 and 45:9, he highlights the frailty of human beings and the awesome greatness of God. Human beings are in no more of a position to answer back to God than a vase is to criticize its molder for making it a certain way, saying, you forgot to add handles. 
Paul is not saying here that we should not entertain legitimate questioning of God, which arises from sincere desire to understand God's ways and an honest willingness to accept whatever God might, whatever answer God might give. It is the attitude of the creature presuming to judge the ways of the creator to answer back that Paul implicitly rebukes. Does Paul's answer shock you? It shouldn't. If you've been reading or following along in Romans, remember Romans one twenty one: the fundamental sin of human beings is failing to glorify God as God and give him thanks for all that he has done. Our role is to glorify him. We are just clay that God has fashioned into human beings, quite literally. And God can use us however he chooses, just as a potter uses clay however he chooses. Dr. Cooley writes, how does that make you feel? It does not sound like God is very concerned with our self-esteem. What he is concerned about is our God-esteem. Notice verse 21, that Paul doesn't ask whether or not the potter has power over the clay or whether or not God has power over his creatures. That's obvious. He asks, has the potter no right over the clay to make whatever he wants from it? Think about that. We exist to glorify God. But when instead we rebel against him and do whatever we please, he has every right to glorify himself with our judgment. Every right to harden our hearts and give us over to our sinful trajectory. Again, what is unfair is not that God judges most, but that he saves some by lavishing his grace on undeserving people like us. If we believe that God should show mercy to all equally, then we have failed at a fundamental level to understand the character of God. The potter also creates, verse 21, out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use which indicates that those chosen by God for mercy had no special merits or distinctives that would account for their being chosen. They who are chosen are no more deserving of mercy than those who were hardened instead. Verse 22 and 23 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. It shares two motivations of God here. The the primary overarching motivation is God's zeal for his glory, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. God is exalted in his righteousness, Isaiah 5.16, meting out justice on those who had habitually rebelled against him. But he is also glorified by showing mercy, which is the second motivation indicated, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What has God done to accomplish these dual purposes? To glorify himself and to show mercy? He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This is what we've already seen with the case of Pharaoh. Instead of destroying Pharaoh immediately, God was patient for a time in order to exalt his name and to make his glory more fully known amongst the people of Israel. The same can be said about us right now. We can look around and see a world in utter rebellion against God, and yet God is showing great patience with the wicked. Why? 
God has withheld the final judgment because he wanted to display more gloriously his wrath and power, and because he wanted to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. When the vessels of mercy perceive the fearsome wrath of God on the disobedient and reflect on the fact that they too deserve the same, then in a deeper way they appreciate the riches of God's glory and the grace lavished on them. Finally, after the excursus of verses 14 to 23 in defense of God's righteousness, Paul returns to the larger theme of Romans 9. God's call is the sole basis for inclusion in the true people of God. Paul had to show from the Old Testament scripture that God did not consider ethnicity as a criteria for belonging to the true Israel. And so by using Old Testament Testament examples of God choosing and rejecting, he develops a principle which he then applies to the salvation of individual Jews and Gentiles in his day. Romans 9, 24 to 26. Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, not from the Jews only, sorry, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The fact that God has shown mercy to some Gentiles as well as individual Jews should not surprise any reader of the Old Testament as Paul makes clear by quoting from the prophet Hosea chapter 110 and chapter 2 verse 23. Those who had not been the people of God would now be called members of his family. They would now be those who are loved by God. The application of these terms to the church constitutes firm evidence that Paul viewed the church of Jesus Christ as the true Israel, constituting, uh, or consisting sorry, of both Jews and Gentiles who had been grafted into Christ. Jesus is the true Israel, and thus those who belong to Christ, those who are in him, are also true Israel. People from every nation, tongue, and tribe have been called which is the key term here, as it has been throughout Romans 8 and 9. When Paul quotes from Hosea, he uses his own translation of the Hebrew because both the Hebrew and Greek Bibles have the more generic synonym, I will say, instead of the verb Paul uses, I will call. Paul uses a different synonym than the regular Greek translation because this is exactly the point he has been making for several chapters. This, same, this is the same term as in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's call is no mere invitation, but is an effectual call, making for himself a people by the power of his word. This is an exclusive group taken from their former groups, one or us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And having established that God has chosen individual Gentiles to be his own people, Paul turns now to the effective calling of a remnant from ethnic Israel in verses 27 to 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, 
If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Paul's already established it. God shows no partiality based on ethnicity, but chooses whom he will save regardless of their characteristics. He now brings the full weight of the Old Testament scriptures to bear in defense of his thesis of verse 6, that it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Quoting from Isaiah 10, 22-23, Paul is able to confirm that God's word has not failed, for he promised only to preserve a remnant of Israel. Citing Isaiah 1, 9 exactly, Paul attributes even the salvation of the remnant as a miraculous demonstration of God's mercy. For everyone in Israel was formed from the same lump as those from Sodom and Gomorrah. As the Jewish believer Stephen attested, Acts 7, 51-52, as he was about to be martyred by the Jews, Israel was a hard-hearted and stiff-necked people, always resisting the Holy Spirit. They killed the prophets who announced the coming of Jesus, whom also they betrayed and murdered. But God has not divorced his people, though the many surpassed Sodom and Gomorrah in their disobedience. Matthew eleven twenty four. God will not allow Israel's rebellion to bring her to the annihilation she deserves and which was experienced by those wicked cities. God has other plans for the remnant of ethnic Israel, the chosen vessels of his mercy, as we will see as we continue in Romans 9 through 11. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand that we cannot have any claim to your grace and mercy else they would not be grace and mercy they are freely given by you selectively as you declare many times through your word and lord help us to wrestle with these difficult sayings that you also harden those whom you will holy spirit we ask that you would give us right understanding and that you would help us to glorify God rightly and give him thanks. Lord, we are a people who, if we were given justice, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah, well, us and our children wiped off the face of the earth. But God, instead, you have shown mercy. And for this, we give you praise. For the glory of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>